So, all right, I'm recording and I'm using the whiteboard most of the time. So Leah asked about the sacramental order and um, the fact that it's baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. Okay, so why is the sacraments, why are the sacraments out of order? And it's a good question. Um, so in the Eastern Church, for example, in the Eastern practice, even today, the three sacraments of initiation are held together. Which means a child is baptized. And in our rite of baptism, the child is baptized and we put chrism on their forehead. But it's not confirmation. Okay. In the Eastern practice, the child is baptized, chrism goes on the forehead, it is confirmation, and they put a drop of the precious blood on the child's tongue. So they receive all three sacraments of initiation at the same time. Right. In our practice, baptism and confirmation become separate. And in Scripture, we see that baptism and confirmation were also separate in the Acts of the Apostles when there was not a bishop present. So, so it's discovered that there are these Samaritans who have been baptized, but they have not yet received the Holy Spirit. I think it's in Acts of the Apostles chapter 8. And so they send for Peter and John who come and they lay hands on them so that they receive the Holy Spirit. And so the baptism and confirmation are separate where there's a bishop not present. Okay? Because the bishop is the proper minister of the sacrament of confirmation. Okay, in our practice, a priest can administer confirmation in the event of somebody coming into the church for the first time. But it's actually our practice that if you were baptized a Catholic and then never confirmed and you come to RCIA, you get confirmed by the bishop. Or there has to be a special permission given to the priest to do the confirmation. Because the bishop is the proper minister of confirmation, right? The bishop is the shepherd of everybody in the diocese. My job is to be a collaborator with the bishop because he can't be everywhere at the same time. So what happened was Pius X, right? Pius X. This is the Holy Father, and there's this time of Jansenism in the church where everybody thinks that they're too sinful to go to communion because... Jansenism is also informed by Pelagianism. Pelagianism says that we can merit on our own, so nobody's ever good enough, so that they never go to communion. So in order to emphasize the importance of going to communion for the entire church, Pius X lowers the age of receiving communion to the age of reason, which is seven. Prior to this, people received confirmation and then Holy Communion was received after they were confirmed. And so what happened was reception of Holy Communion gets made earlier at the age of reason, but confirmation sort of stays where it was. So if you go to Lisieux, how many of you have been to Lisieux? Right? And you go to the museum, to St. Teresa's house, you see her first communion dress, you're like, man, she was a big second grader. <laughs> Because she received her first communion at, an, or at a later age when she was confirmed. And so when we lowered the Eucharist to the age of seven, we left confirmation where it was. And then the church left it up to each bishop's conference when they would establish the age for confirmation. 
In the United States, the bishops could not agree, so every diocese is different. I was confirmed, I think I was in 7th or 8th grade. And I didn't want to be confirmed. And I caused a big havoc. Because at that point, I was like more religiously curious, and I thought I needed to learn about every religion so I could make a positive choice. So I could say no in order to say yes intuitively. That's what I wanted to do. And But I was very astute, and so I was always the one who answered the questions in religion class and knew the faith. I just didn't know the rest of the faith, so I could say no in order to say yes. So... um so my mom did, you know, what every good Catholic mom would do, and she called the chancery and said, my son doesn't want to be confirmed. What do I do? And so they called the parish, who called the, my teacher, and my teacher said, oh, he's more ready than anybody else to be confirmed by the standard of I know the faith. So I just got confirmed. And I, but I do remember sort of I got confirmed and I went through these phases of like maybe all religions lead to God. But then as I started to study other religions, I just felt like something was off in my life. And so I, then I came to the conclusion, well, Catholicism is right for me, but Hinduism might be right for those Indian people. And, uh, and then it wasn't really until I got to college that I started to study the faith and realized, okay, this is true. And this is like the one true faith. And it was a progression as it happened. So saying no so that I could say yes, it kind of came with time. Um, but luckily, or I thank God that I had a discerning heart to constantly be seeking that in my life. Like I remember being in high school and being at Mass, and it was during the consecration, and I just realized the same Jesus who is in heaven is on the altar right now. And I know I'd probably been told that, but it just like happened in a more f- profound way at that time. And it was in high school that I got involved in youth ministry and had this deeper conversion. And then I did make this interior act of the will to say yes to our Lord at that point, the way I should have said yes to our Lord at confirmation. Right? Because confirmation really should be a saying yes to our Lord. And this is the argument people have for making confirmation later, is that when you're young, you can't say yes to our Lord. You can say yes to our Lord when you're older. I'm not really sure that holds up, because teenagers can't say yes to anything. <laughs> and you can say yes to our Lord when you're younger. You can. I gave my life to Jesus in fourth grade at a Protestant church. And I had that experience. My friend invited me to their church, to Awanas. Okay, some of you might know what Awanas is. It's like approved workmen are not ashamed is the acronym. And so you'd go there and you'd go and you'd memorize Bible verses and pass them off. And I was really good at it. I still remember the first Bible verse I ever memorized in Awanas was Romans 4, 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him who justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. King James Version. So, I still remember all of that. And then we would go play games, and then we would end up in the chapel. And in the chapel, there would always be a sermon, and the sermon would always be the same. We'd sing, and then the pastor would come out, and he would say, Jesus can come back at any time. And so if you have not given your life to Jesus, I just invite you all 
to ask Him right now to come into your heart. So everybody right now, just put down your heads. Just put down your heads. <laughs> so I'm sitting there with my head down. He's like, if you have not given your life to Jesus, I want you to just raise your hand. And one of our brothers and sisters will come around and they'll put their hand on your shoulder and they'll pray with you. And so I'm sitting there as a fourth grader with my head down and I'm really having this decision to make. I'm like, okay, am I going to give my life to Jesus? Am I going to raise my hand or not? Uh, and I raised my hand. And somebody put their hand on my shoulder. They said this prayer. And something happened in my life. I made this commitment to give my life to our Lord. And after that, my faith practice changed. It changed. Because I didn't want to become an evangelical free, but when I said my prayers, my rote prayers, I prayed them like I was talking to this person that I just surrendered my life to. So when I said, lead us not into temptation, I was thinking about all the temptations that I wanted him to lead me not into. When I made my act of contrition and I said, I firmly resolve with the help of your grace to sin no more and avoid the occasions of sin... I would then think about, I'm an indication of sin. I've got to get out of here. Because I said I was going to avoid the occasions of sin. Last time I went to confession, I said that to this person, Jesus, that I know. And when I went to bed at night, I would pray. And I would have this conversation with our Lord. And when something like this, like, Jesus, I'm supposed to go to the amusement park on Saturday, so just wait till after Saturday to come back. <laughs> You know, because I spent a lot of time in anxiety about that, actually, when I was younger. Um, so it was the fourth grader prayer, but I was praying like I was talking to a person. So it is possible for a kid in fourth or fifth grade to surrender their life to our Lord, to make a decision for Christ. And in fact, as our fifth graders are going up in front of the bishop who puts his hand on them, they should have that same kind of feeling of, Oh, okay, like today's the day I'm entrusting my life to our Lord and His church. The same thing that I went through interiorly when I was like, am I going to raise my hand? Our kids should have that kind of experience. So when the bishop lays his hands on their head and anoints them with the holy oil and calls them by a new name, they experience it as a new beginning. Right? And it's not like we only need to experience it. It's just a feeling. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that like what we do externally should have an impact interiorly. And it should be an act of faith. And not simply something that they do because they do because it's part of the school curriculum. And we can inform that. You know, we can teach them and lead them there so that they have that experience of giving their life to our Lord. And what is it going to mean? It means like you say no to all these things so that you can say yes to our Lord because He loves you and He came into your life to change everything. You know, it's the role of preaching the kerygma in class. And Pope Francis has said, like, the first proclamation of Christ's saving love must be on the lips of every catechist in every class over and over and over again. Jesus Christ loves you. He died on the cross to save you. He walks beside you to lead you and guide you. Every single day. And I hope I've been trying to model that as I've been teaching this class, that we have to proclaim that 
proclamation of Christ's love in everything that we teach. The rest of the catechesis and doctrine and everything else, we teach that, but we teach that within the context of this proclamation of Christ's saving love. And so it is possible for a young kid to turn their life over to Jesus in confirmation class. I'll get to you in just a second. And so we have it in fifth grade. And the fifth grade, I think, is a good grade to have it, actually. It works well for my own agenda. (laughs) So it's a natural point to keep doing education for love. That's why I like it. Um, But other dioceses are moving it. So Fargo, North Dakota, moved it to third grade. So communion went, Eucharist went to third grade. Confirmation came back to third grade. Phoenix moved it already. And Denver is moving it now. Because Bishop Aquila, who's Archbishop Aquila, is in Denver, was in Fargo, and this is his big thing, is restoring the sacramental order. When we restore the sacramental order, it makes a lot of other things make more sense, right? Because we can explain this to our kids, that this is what it is. And then the practice, what they go through, actually matches what we believe about the sacraments. And it also like helps to emphasize these dimensions of the sacrament of marriage. Right? Because the sacrament of marriage mirrors the sacraments of in- initiation, Right? Because what makes marriage to baptize people who exchange vows, right? After the exchange of vows, they're married. The vows are the form of the sacrament. So they make vows which make them married. What makes that marriage unbreakable? Hmm? Nope. Consummation of the marriage makes it unbreakable. To baptize people who exchange vows... That marriage can be broken if it's not consummated. The Holy Father can break it. He can dissolve it. But consummation of the marriage or one flesh union makes it unbreakable. It seals what happened here. So there's an analogy between baptism and Eucharist and the vows that take place in the establishment of the sacrament of marriage and conjugal life of the couple. What renews our baptism on a regular basis? Repeatable, repeatable, repeatable. Receiving the Eucharist. What renews the vows of marriage on a continual basis? Repeatable, repeatable, repeatable is the conjugal life of the couple. And that gets lost when we're proclaiming the church's sexual ethic. We don't talk about how like the one of the purpose of the unitive end of marriage is to renew and strengthen the vows that the couple made. And in the liturgy, that's also reflected because in the liturgy, there is no such thing as exchanging your vows again. There's no such thing as renewing your vows in the liturgy. We do it because it's like nice and people see it on TV, but we're not going to do it anymore at the Joint Hope Mass because... You don't do it again. You never repeat the form of a sacrament. When we renew our baptisms, we don't repeat, we don't pour water on our heads and say, I baptize you. It's the form of the sacrament. We repeat the promises. So in the liturgy, when there's an anniversary of a marriage, you don't repeat, I take you as my husband, I take you as my wife. You repeat the exchange of rings. Take this ring as a sign of my love and fidelity in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
and you repeat the nuptial blessing, but you don't repeat the exchange of vows. Because the renewal of vows is something that should be happening in the life of every couple, hopefully fairly regularly. Uh, so, yes? Hey, uh, when I went to seminary, uh, one of my professors is a psychologist who's been doing research for many years on the connection between that experience you had as a fourth grader and any kind of education within the church. And the first thing that he discovered is that for children, education, catechesis, does not make sense for the kid until they've had that experience. And at some point along the line of catechesis, he's also discovered that if you continue to do this without that change of heart, that you're actually inoculating the kid against yeah, I'd, I'd probably agree with that through experience. That's why, like, Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, that's what it does. Like, Catechesis of the Good Shepherd is a catechesis based on Montessori that, like, tries to provide experiential um, knowledge of Christ and his love. And, um, and I know lots of the school sisters have gone through that training for Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. And I would be an advocate for Catechesis of the Good Shepherd as an augmentation of the religion curriculum, like, even up through age 12. But that's not my decision. That's Father he slips. So, <laughs> so y'all talk to him, <laughs> right? But I think in a lot of schools that have done catechesis of the Good Shepherd, they report like actually increased engagement among their young people. So, um, okay. So that was sacramental order. Clear enough. Leah's on her phone. She's not even paying attention. She asked the question. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so going back to this plan for redemption. God created the world and everything was good. Then something happened. It caused a distortion. Then something else happened so that we could grow in clarity and eventually get to heaven. Okay, so we've gone through this period, how things were supposed to be. We've talked about distortion and how it manifests. We've talked about like we're redeemed in Christ and gaining purity of heart. But how do we move from here to here? Because for many people, like their question is always, well, how do I do that? Because when we look at our own lives and we try to fit ourselves into the narrative of salvation, we often find ourselves just kind of oscillating right here. You know, some days I'm distorted, some days I'm doing pretty good, <laughs> then I'm distorted. We just find ourselves oscillating between distortion and clarity. So how do we move there? And really, we move there the same way that history reveals. We move there by going through the cross. Okay, by going through the cross. And going through the cross is not easy. It's not like, oh, you just go through the cross. There you go. (laughs) Because there's a certain way of understanding human suffering that helps us to recognize the role of redemptive suffering and when suffering is redemptive. Okay? Not all suffering has the effect of being redemptive. Some suffering has the effect of making me think God hates me. Probably a lot of our suffering has the effect of making me think God hates me. And so for suffering to be redemptive, it has to be the suffering that Christ suffered. 
And we have to suffer like Christ and in imitation of Christ. So what does that mean? We'll start by giving a broad definition of suffering. Okay, so broad definition of suffering. We can say that suffering is simply pain. But not all pain is experienced as suffering. So, for example, if I was a football player for the Nebraska Cornhuskers, part of my life would be to run stadium drills. And there would be a lot of pain involved. But if I ask that football player if he experiences that as suffering, he would probably say no. He would just say, like, no pain, no gain, the hurt's good, feels good to hurt, things like that. If I take somebody who is 40 pounds overweight and I ask them to run stadium drills, they are going to experience that as suffering. So two different people can experience the same event. One says it's suffering. The other says it's not suffering. It's just part of my life. So there's a certain amount of pain that we experience in our life, but if it fits into our narrative of our life, we don't say it's suffering. So suffering has to do with something that happens. This is the narrative of my life. It's just a line on the board. And I have a past... I have a present moment and I have a future. So if my future involves playing professional football, running stadium drills in the present moment fits into my future, it doesn't I don't experience it as suffering. So suffering qua suffering is something that happens in our life that involves pain that changes the course of my future. It changes the course of my future. It makes my foreseen future now impossible to attain. So, Joe Theismann, some of you are old, was a great quarterback for the Washington Redskins. And Lawrence Taylor tackled him breaking his femur on national television, and we all watched it and were completely grossed out. So for Joe Theismann, he had a foreseeable future, which was to continue to play professional football, a couple more Super Bowl rings, things like that. This event happens in one game, and now none of that is possible anymore. Now, I don't know in his own subjectivity if he experienced it as suffering, but I would imagine that he did. And so his suffering involves the fact that his new future, or we'll call it the concrete reality, is now something other than his foreseen future. And there's a gap between the life I thought I was going to have and the life I actually have. And so all forms of suffering come down to the gap between the life I thought I would have and the life I actually have. So a woman who gets cancer, 
my friend Jennifer Fender, she had three young children. She got cancer. So her suffering was not merely the pain of having cancer. It was the fact that she would not be present at her daughter's graduation from high school, that she wouldn't be present at her son's wedding, that she was going to miss all these future events that were now impossible. In the present moment, that suffering is the gap between I have to lay in bed and I can't get out of bed and my son wants me to play with him right now. Okay, so our suffering is this gap between the way we think our life is supposed to be and the way our life actually is. This is why only human beings can suffer. Because only a human being can transcend himself in order to reflect on the fact that his life could be different. So only human beings can suffer. So we have this gap between the way I think my life is supposed to be and the way my life actually is. And so when people are suffering and they start asking questions like, why would God allow this to happen? Okay, the question, why would God allow this to happen, implies that God should have done something different. It's based on the premise that God would, if he could, remove all suffering from the world. God would, if he could, remove all suffering from the world. Whenever we ask the question, why does God allow this? It's based on a premise. God would, if he could, remove all suffering from the world. But nowhere in scripture does it say that God will, if he can, remove all suffering from the world. That's not who God revealed himself to be. Jesus himself asked that God remove all suffering from the world. And then God said, not my will. And then he said, not my will be done, but yours. You know, when Jesus prays in the garden, take this chalice from me, he's praying about take away the sin of the world that I'm going to have to bear on myself and go to the cross in order to redeem. Just redeem it. Just go amnesty. Redeem it. Amnesty. That's what that prayer really signifies. Because Jesus surely wants the redemption of the world. He just like is asking that it could happen in another way other than him dying on the cross. So sometimes when people say, I've suffered in my life. Jesus didn't do anything for me. Like Reflect on how many times Jesus asked that God would remove all suffering from the world. Three. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes back three times. I never even picked up on that. I was reading through Mark's Gospel the other day. And it's like he goes away and he prays the prayer. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will be done but yours. Then he comes back and he finds him sleeping. And, it says he goes, and then it says he went back and he prayed the same way. And then he comes back and he finds him sleeping. And then it says he came back a third time. So three times he went to plead with the Father that redemption could happen in a different way. So when we're thinking about why didn't God do anything to help me, like Jesus did go three times to ask the Father to just magically take away your pain. But then he said, not my will be done but yours, and he showed us how to suffer in a redemptive way. So we have this gap between future and my concrete reality. And this applies to all of our lives. In some sense, we all experience this. 
you know, even if the air conditioning's not on, like Monday, it should be cooler in chapel, but it's not cool in chapel. Now, that could have caused great anxiety for people. Like, if I kept saying, it should be cooler right now, it should be cooler right now, it should be cooler, I would just get angry and just let that anger build in me, and it would cause me great anxiety. And so most of us in that place, we were just said, well, it's not cooler, I just have to accept the fact that I'm sweating right now and I'm okay. Right? The bigger things in life are, you know, I should have had a different life, but I don't. And we think about the life we think we should have had. So I'm going to talk about Jesus. Jesus himself has a gap between the life he should have and the life he actually has. Right? Jesus has a should life. Called Son of God. The second person of the Holy Trinity. Eternal Gaudium. Eternal joy. We believe that the Holy Trinity is perfectly content to be the Holy Trinity from all eternity and doesn't need creation. So he has a should have life. And then he has a concrete life, which is, St. Paul says, he became sin. He took on the sin of the world. And that gap in Jesus' life is an infinite gap. Right? It's an infinitely great gap. John Paul II in Salvifici Dolores says this. Okay? He talks about the distance between Jesus, the Son of God, and the reality of taking on the sin of the world. And it's experienced in his own life as a distance from the Father. When he prays Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so his own suffering is a distance between the life he should have had and the life that he has. And he gives us a model for suffering or for dealing with our suffering. Okay, But before I do that, there are cliches that we always throw out there and we don't always know what they mean. Okay, It just becomes a cliche. And those cliches are, anyone, anyone? Offer it up. And well, greater good can come. We can talk about all those things. I'm going to say, take up your cross. Or we could call this like suck it down. Right? Suffer through it. So offer it up, take up your cross. So what am I supposed to do? Because these are two totally like different things. Like, somebody stubs their toe, and grandma's like, offer it up! I'm like, I'm supposed to offer up my stub toe? Like, how do I offer up my stub toe? And so we have this, like, idea of, I'm going to offer up my pain, or I'm going to accept my pain. Like, which way does it go? How does that work? You know, there... And so we throw out these cliches, and we don't really know what they mean. And then we just kind of say, well, suffering is redemptive, so it's good. God wants you to suffer. St. Paul says, Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. Rather, he emptied himself and took the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men. 
So he doesn't deem this should be life as something to be grasped at or held on to. Rather, he empties himself and takes the form of a slave. He became sin. He accepted the cross. And so in the midst of our own human suffering, there is this dimension of offering up, but what I'm offering up is the possible future that I wanted for myself. And I say, Jesus, I offer you the life where I knew my mother for my whole life. For Jennifer's situation, Jesus, I offer you the life where I get to see my daughter graduate from high school. Jesus, I offer you the life where I don't have a headache right now. It's more simple form. So that we can then accept the concrete reality of our lives and take up our cross freely. The thing that keeps us from taking up our cross freely is that we want to hold on to the life that we wish we had. We want to hold on to the should-be life. And holding on to the should-be life is not entrusting my life to God. Right? Holding on to the should-be life is making myself God. Because it's based on this premise that God would, if he could, have done something different, and he should have done something different. So God doesn't know what he's doing, I know what I'm doing. And so this process by which we offer up the possible future that's now unattainable in order to accept the concrete reality of our life is finding our identity as sons and daughters. It's finding our identity as sons and daughters. Why did suffering come into the world? Because we rejected our identity as sons and daughters. It didn't happen until we rejected that identity. Suffering is a result of original sin. So before original sin, there was no suffering because I entrusted my life completely to the Father. Suffering only comes in when I think I know what my life should be like better than God knows. And so suffering and imitation of Christ means that I offer up the possible future, whatever is causing me conflict, in order to accept the concrete reality of my life. Because when I do so, this holding on to the possible future actually becomes like a barrier, an impediment to receiving grace. And so offering that up, Lord Jesus, I offer you the life where I knew my mom, it opens up this space for Christ to enter into the concrete reality of my life that I don't like very much so that he can transform it and bring it to something better. And in that sense, then, the cross is the means by which we are restored as sons and daughters. It's that experience of human suffering that's the means by which we are restored as sons and daughters.
when we suffer as Christ suffers. So, when I was depressed, I'm going to use this as a concrete example. Also, so you can know that I'm not, like, depressed all the time. (laughs) So, when I was in Rome, I had this conflict in my life. And... It was just that I was reading all this stuff and it doesn't make sense to me and it keeps talking about sonship, da-da-da-da-da, and trust your life. I don't even know what that means. Afi Darcy, I didn't even look it up. So um, so I remember I went into chapel and I, uh, one day I prayed in chapel and I said, Lord, help me to learn how to love like I once knew how to love. Because when I was in high school, I had this really profound experience on a retreat where like, it's like a week-long tech, and uh, at the end of the retreat, like we're all like arm in arm singing "Friends Are Friends Forever" by Michael W. Smith. <laughs> Super emotionally charged. Everybody's crying. It's like girls on either side of me, two people on either side of them, and at a certain point, like we're all like group hug, and and the two people on my right and the two people on my left ball like reached over to give me a little arm squeeze, like we're glad you're here. And I just started bawling because, and I remember, like, it, I immediately said, these people actually like me. These people actually accept me. Like, these people love me. And I needed to know that in that moment. And I just started crying. And I had this experience of security and love and safety. And it changed who I was as a person. Because then, even though I was in a school full of people who didn't really like me very much, like I had friends at church that I knew I could count on, and they were extremely faithful. And I stayed faithful because of my relationship with them. Anytime I had an opportunity to get in trouble at a party or elsewise, I would think about, well, I can't do this because I have this bond with my friends. And our Lord worked through that. But somewhere along the line... I became hardened to that and I didn't see that and I didn't experience that joy. And no matter how much I had studied in the seminary and I'd been a priest for about five years, six years, seven years at the time, I didn't experience that joy. And that's what I went into chapel and I asked our Lord to help me do. And so I got a really good Jesuit spiritual director who had me start to pray through, like ask Jesus what he remembers about your dad dying. Ask Jesus what he remembers about these events in my life those things that happen that cause a distortion. And I started to see those things through our Lord's lens, and it started to loosen some things up in my spiritual life. And I started realizing the guilt I was carrying around that wasn't really mine to be carrying around. And then one day I was in chapel, and I was praying over Mary and John at the foot of the cross, and Mary sa- Jesus says to John, Behold your mother. And I got stuck there for a few days, just behold your mother, behold your mother, behold your mother. And I just got stuck there. And then I had a memory of being about, whatever, eighth grade, no, being about 10, I think. And this lady came over to the house who sold Mary Kay Cosmetics, and she comes over, and she's talking to my mom upstairs, and I hear her voice, and I have all these emotions. My heart starts stirring, and I didn't know what I was feeling. I was just feeling this emotional response to this woman's voice. And... 
then she left, and I went upstairs and asked my stepmom, am I supposed to know her? And she said, no, that was her gut reaction, no. And all growing up, from that point forward, I believed that the story of my life was my mom was sick, I lived with my dad, then my stepmom came, and I lived with her. I thought that was my story. And this lady that came over to the house, I thought she was just a friend of the family that I wasn't supposed to know. That was the story of my life. So it was like my perceived life. But then I, all these like mosaic pieces started to fall into place when this came to me in prayer and a lot of conversations that I had just forgotten about or ignored. And I realized that like this lady, who I wasn't supposed to know, I also was at a party at her house when I was in high school, and she pulled out this little kid underwear that had a poem about me written on them that somebody wrote when I was getting potty trained, and she still had them at her house. And this was just extremely confusing to me because I wasn't supposed to know this lady. And it turns out that when my mom had cancer while she was pregnant with me. I was born. She went to the hospital. The pastor called this family in the parish and said, there's a woman whose son has cancer, or daughter, there's a woman who has cancer. She has three little kids. Can you help them? And so they would come over and bring us food and clean the house and babysit. And eventually, like, they would come to the house and I would be strapped into my high chair because it was the 70s and that's what you did. You just strap the kid in the high chair, you go to work, somebody will come later. Um, and so she'd come in, I'd be in the high chair, she'd pick me up, carry me around, talk to me while she was doing her errands, all that stuff. Eventually, my mom went to the hospital, and she took me home with her. And I stayed there until my dad got remarried, basically. Now, I'd bounce around in different places, but I was primarily there. And so all of this kind of comes to the surface, and I'm like, I need to talk to these people. Like, I need to know these people, and I'm afraid they're dead because I don't know how old they are. So I go on Facebook, and I'm Facebooking, and I find her daughter. It was on my birthday that I found her daughter, actually, because God gives me little gifts, like, on specific feast days. So on my birthday, I find her daughter. Send this message. Oh, you probably don't know me. Our friends were parents. Our parents were friends. I get this message back immediately. How could we ever forget the little boy that God sent into our lives? And then proceeded within about five emails to tell me all of these stories that nobody had ever told me about in my life. Like, your mom used to call the house every day and we would put you on the phone with her. I never knew that happened. Like, you used to have your own time with your mom every day. About one o'clock, you would go in and you'd lay in the bed with her. I never knew that happened. Because nobody in my life knew that happened. Only these people knew that happened. And all the stories of my mother that I'd ever known were stories of her before she got sick, not stories about her when I was alive. And so then I really needed to go to therapy. And so when I went to therapy, it was in Michigan at Alma, where the sisters are, which is about two hours from where these people live. And so I had the opportunity to go to their house and spend time with them. And, uh, and so I went there like the first day, and we're all talking. And for the first time in my life, I'm around people, and they're talking, and I actually feel like peace. I feel like I belong there. <clears throat> for me, going home was often anxiety-ridden as I went home and like <sighs> relief when I left. But this was the first time I was at somebody's house, and I didn't want to leave in a long time. 
And then Mary says to me, hang on, I got something for you. She goes and she pulls out this giant freezer bag. And in the giant freezer bag, she's got newspaper clippings and all kinds of stuff. And so she has these newspaper clippings like Kilcally wins the swim meet. Kilcally goes to West Point. Like She followed me all this time. And she has all these birthday cards from my second birthday party, which I celebrated at their house, which was two weeks after my mom had died. And she kept all the cards. And she had a card that the hospital chaplain wrote for my parents after my mom died, kind of a narrative, poetic, and reflection on the love between my mother and my father that my dad just kind of gave to her and just said, here. And she had a big piece of red construction paper folded in half that said in crayon on the front, to Mary, Mom, from Sean, and you open it up and it says, I love you in big letters. And she carried all that stuff around for 35 years through like seven home moves in order to give it to a 37-year-old priest so that I would finally understand what it means that somebody loves me unconditionally and without wanting anything from me. And my whole spiritual life shifted because I finally had an experience of, like, a very profound experience of God is always watching over you. And our Lord can resolve anything that's ever happened in your life. And it just changed everything. And so it explained all of these feelings and emotions that I had as a kid, right? It also taught me all the stuff I've ever taught you about attachment and the way that I do theology now. Um, But what I had to do then, like working through that, moving forward, was always, okay, so there's this life I should have had. Now there's really a life I should have had. And there's this life I have. So there's the life where my parents didn't keep that information from me. There's the life where I actually was adopted by this other couple. There's the life where when I confronted my parents about it in the present, they owned up to everything and told me that they were sorry, which just hasn't happened. You know, there's all of those things that can cause like anxiety and resentment and stress. And so, like, actually, just last Memorial Day, I went to my dad's grave, and I said, like, I forgive you for, like, not letting me know those people. I forgive you for, like, not whatever it might have been. I forgive you that I wasn't a football player in high school. Because if I had the dad I wish I had, I would have played football in high school. Like, things, ridiculous things like that. One time I had to do this exercise where... You basically, like, you're trying to make peace with a parent, and you have to write out your narrative as it would read if you had the parent you wish you had. Because what does that do? It catalogs this life I think I should have. And you find out that you're carrying around resentments that you didn't play football in high school. But I never even played football. But it was like, if I had the dad, it was present in my life, he wasn't absent in the house, I would have been more secure. If he had fought to keep my brothers in the house with me, I would have grown up rough housing with them. I would have played sports, and I would have been the captain of the football team instead of a swimmer. But that's a whole exercise in, like, Lord, I offer you the life I wish I had, or I offer you the life I think I should have. I invite you into my life as it is. 
And as I invite him into my life as it is, it's then that he can transform me. It's then that he can make all things new. He can make all things new when he's allowed to enter into a distorted world. When we only give him the life we think we should have, he can't make all things new because it doesn't even exist. We're in control of the relationship. We're in control of the relationship. And so suffering with Christ is about restoring our identity as sons and daughters. It's about allowing Him into our life as it is and just giving up all of our preconceived notions of what we wish we had or what we thought our life should be. So we offer up what we think our life should be in order to accept our life as it is. Right? This will also bring about peace in people's lives because clinical anxiety is defined as the distance between my inner and outer world. Right? Anxiety is the result of holding two realities in your head at the same time. When I'm concentrated on the way I wish my life was and then I'm faced with the way my life is. That's what causes anxiety. Peace comes in surrendering. So in 12-step groups, I admit I'm powerless over my addiction. I need, I surrender my life to a higher power. All that has to happen first. And surrendering means, like, I admit I am addicted to thus and such a thing. That's who I am. Now God can transform me. When I'm like, oh, I don't have any problems, he can't transform me. Okay, when we think that we're perfect, he can't transform us. Now, this is an obstacle to evangelization in the church. Because too many of the faithful think we have everything right and we're so concerned about making sure everybody else knows that we have everything right, that we don't leave enough space for our Lord to come in and transform what needs to be transformed. You know, I often talk to parents and they're like, my, my child, I don't know what's wrong with them. They're running around, they're doing all this stuff. Well, what's your family like? Oh, we're perfect. <laughs> no, nobody's perfect. None of us were raised by Jesus. None of us were raised by Mary and Joseph. You know, and we all have like, those hurts in our life and our Lord wants to transform them. And that's what he wants to do. That's how we're renewed and that's how we become his sons and daughters. It starts in removing those obstacles. And those obstacles are our personal sins. So those obstacles are the sins committed against us. The biggest obstacle is like really maintaining that ideal that isn't honest with our Lord in prayer. Okay, going back to when I quoted Father Barak, sometimes our, tra- our conversion starts with saying, I love my sin more than Jesus. Because at least then he can enter in and, uh, and transform it in truth. Okay, so I've done the class on suffering. And hopefully I've resolved my Rome story so you're not worried. Then. Go to bed sucking my thumb at night because I'm unloved. Right. And that's part of the story. Like There is more <clears throat> ever since then. And honestly, since I started preaching on divine filiation, I've had like five conversions this year like definitive things where either our Lord opened up some other space in my life or I realized where I had another obstacle to his grace or I just came to know in a more profound way how trustworthy our Lord was. 
and everything in scripture like points back to this relationship of like God is trustworthy and I entrust my life to him like the raw charisma um, and so I just offer that as a witness to hope that God can transform even our big dysfunctional families if we have them alright so I'm going to do questions um are we ready to do questions? Do you need to stand up for five minutes? We've got like 25 minutes left. Okay. Man, men learn fatherhood from the mother or their mother? Question mark. Please explain. So when John Paul II says that, and I don't have a copy of the essay, I could find it, but I need to go back and look through all of the emails from when I was in grad school. Um, he's talking about how a father learns his fatherhood from the mother, as in his wife. Okay, that he learns fatherhood from her. In the sense that like he learns to accept this child as his own from the woman who has always had this child as her own. Because as philosophers reflect on fatherhood, a father is somebody who takes responsibility for a child. It's somebody who takes responsibility for the child. Because even in the realm of natural life and human biology and brain science, right, the brain is formed in relation to the mother in utero. The father enters in from the outside after the fact. So the father, the necessity of the father who raises the child being the natural ch- father of the child is not as grave as the necessity of the mother of the child being the person who raises the child. Because the natural mother starts to form the bond as the child is forming in the womb. The father is the person who takes responsibility for the child. In some cultures, a maternal uncle is usually the person who's actually fathering the child, like bringing them up, raising them, etc. But a father is somebody who comes in and he chooses to take responsibility for this child. And he chooses that child and accepts them. Right? They're chosen and accepted. And they have that experience of, if it's a boy, receiving my masculinity from my father as they get older. And so this leads to kind of a pastoral reflection on like, young boys who are growing up without fathers. And what can we do to help them? And oftentimes we, you know, they might go see the priest or they might go see a psychologist. But I would posit that what they really need is they need a man to choose them freely to spend time with them. Because a child who is, gets to go spend time with his psychologist every week understands that that's a relationship of constraint and not freedom. Like, the psychologist has to spend time with me. It's his job. My parents are paying him to spend time with me. Or the priest has to spend time with me. He's a priest. Like, he has to do it. It's different than, like, a neighbor who just decides to, hey, I'm going to start spending time with this kid. And he chooses him. And he notices this person is sacrificing his time for me. And when my brother lived with the Rons, like he eventually realized that they chose him 
and they weren't doing it out of constraint. But his first response, like I talked about in my homily the other day, was they're just pitying me. They're doing it out of constraint. They have to. Sister. Yeah, I would say there's somebody there, but what we should be striving for is a permanent person who's going to be there. And there are people, just nobody's ever proposed it to them. Like, there are good men. Like, if that man is you, really want to be that man, (laughs) they would go to their pastors and say, Father, if there are any young kids who just need, like, a male role model in their life. I'm your dude. If they really want to be that man, if they're really about strong fatherhood, and it's not necessarily the charism of that man is you, but eventually, like what we receive has to be transformed into action. And I just don't know that it's ever occurred to somebody that hey, I could just ask, like, these are some really strong fathers in the parish, and this kid needs a father figure, and I'm going to find out, like, who will be the father for this kid. And it might just be somebody who hangs out with him, or takes him fishing, or something like that, but just periodically does that, but he has to do it out of, not out of constraint, but out of choice. He has to see it as his apostolate. He has to see it as some manner in which he accepts children lovingly from God and brings them up according to the law of Christ and his church, even when he's not the natural father of the child. It's an outpouring. It's spiritual fatherhood that is always part of natural fatherhood. So when it says that men learn fatherhood from the mother, like that's really what he's getting at. He's coming, it's about like how I come to know myself in relation to the other person. So in the Wednesday audiences, when John Paul II talks about how we come to know our masculinity in the midst of the union between man and woman, so also a father comes to know his fatherhood in relation to the mother of this child, who is different from him but similar to him. And because a father really is a different relationship than a mother. Um, and we talked about yesterday, our father kind of always is sort of bridging the gap between the child and society. And a father is somebody who always has their back. There's a great book, actually, it's, it's written by a psychologist, but I like his categories. It's by David Stoop. It's called Making Peace with Your Father. And he talks about like different kinds of fatherhood. Um, so he talks about the tenderness father, the authority father, the warrior protector, and the spiritual mentor. Now, what he says is that a lot of us had one of these, but most of our fathers weren't all of these. But what we need from the ages of like zero to three is the tenderness father, who's really just an extension of the mother. Right? Somebody who constantly provides care and nurtures and etc. Gets up in the middle of the night, feeds you, things like that. Then from like three to twelve-ish, we need this authority and lawgiver father, 
who disciplines and helps us develop the virtues and things like that. Like Aristotle says, a child that age, you can't like teach them by reason. They have to learn by pleasure and pain. They learn to develop virtue. Then there's a transition to the warrior protector father from like 12 to 20. And this is somebody who both challenges that teenager, but the teenager always knows that he has their back. So it might be somebody that a teenager butts heads with, but yet when the teenager goes out in the world, he always knows his father's there for him. He always knows his father has his back. And then there's the transition to spiritual mentoring guide, which is somebody that you know you can always go to to get advice, but you're kind of on your own, and you just keep coming back, and they give you wisdom and things like that. Right? Like that's what we need at these ages. And there's a gradual breaking away and moving towards independence for the person. So in this book... Making peace with your father. He goes through these. He talks about some dysfunctional kinds of fathers, how to like forgive, how to like move forward, um, and identifying like what did I actually not get because it helps me to identify the life I think I should have, so that I know what to forgive and offer up, so that I can allow our Lord to transform my life. So when I was in Alma, I read that book. So. Um, how does this translate to people who are not called to marriage, children, or, relig- or religious life and are received as selfish? So I think I said I was going to answer this later. Um, but I don't know if I want to... Hang on. Let me see what else is in here. There's nothing else in here. Huh? Is there supposed to be something else in here? Are they in here? Oh, okay, sister. Why don't you ask me? I want to talk about vocation, but I think I'll be better suited to do it tomorrow. <laughs> it's not from you, Mary. <laughs> this is not from Mary. What is a good way to help children that are in a closed adoption? They have no information about their birth parents. What do you say to parents that are infertile and no children come from their loving union? So... Like, adoption is a good. And adoption is one of the ways by which a couple receives children lovingly from God and brings them up according to the law of Christ and his church. We have to remember that. But we also know that adoption usually is the result of somebody was born into the world and their parents couldn't take care of them. So the child has already gone through a great loss and a great trauma in their life. And most of us need to know our narrative. Like, we need to know our story. So a child who's been adopted, like, they need to know they were adopted. And as much information as they can have is helpful for them to know their life story because it helps them to have an explanation for their life. And sometimes they might struggle with some things that would be explained if they only knew what their life was like before they were adopted. It doesn't make those things easier. It just gives an explanation for their pain. Because having pain with no explanation is one of the worst kinds of suffering that we can have. We don't know why we feel empty inside. But there's an explanation for why I feel empty inside. Because I bonded with my mother and then I was separated from her. And it gives an explanation for that. So then, then I know what our Lord, what to ask our Lord to heal. And so 
I would say, like for a child that's in a closed adoption where they have no information about their birth parents, they may be able to have access at least to the information about like how long they were with their birth parent before they were put up for adoption, where they adopted from an agency, where they adopted from an orphan, like who took care of them at these times in their life? When did they come into your life? If there's some emptiness in me, it's because I don't know my history. And at least explain the reason you don't feel connected is because you don't know your history. And then we can ask our Lord into that history and emphasize the fact that our Lord's relationship with you started at conception and he knows all those things and he will be able to explain all those things to you when you meet him someday. Which is probably the best crack we have at a contiguous narrative. Because nobody has the information. Now I think some people do write letters to my birth parents if they ever come looking for me and give them back to the adoption agency that did the closed adoption there's good movies on that but that would be something they could do to try to find their narrative now some people don't want to know their narrative and they just are affirmed and i don't need to know my narrative i don't need to know i have parents i don't need to know and and sometimes i think that can be good and sometimes it can be a manifestation of avoidance of some pain in their life um but the parents the thing I would say to the parents is that to remember that they received those children lovingly from God. Like when they adopted, they've probably gone through a long period of infertility and waiting. And so there can be a temptation to see the child as the fulfillment of their own or answer to their own pain. And then there can be a resistance to telling the child their narrative. Or they can be offended that the child wants to know their narrative. But the child wanting to know their narrative is just they want to know who they are. It's not an offense against, or it's not a judgment on the parents that have raised them. You know, I think in my own life, the reason, one of the reasons that my parents didn't talk to me about my narrative was they were afraid that I would leave them. Because they knew that there was a strong bond already with this other family. And so there was a fear I would leave them. And I wouldn't have left them. But I might have left them for weekends. You know, I might have gone and spent time with these people. But at least I would have known my narrative. I would have known why I grew up in a world where I would look around me and I would say, there has to be a different way of being a family than this. I don't know why I think that, but I just think there has to be a different way of being a family than this. And now I have an explanation for why I used to think that. Which brings me peace. Okay, so what do you say to parents who are infertile and children come, and their children come from their loving unions? That, like, every single couple is called to be open to the children that God wants to send them. And it is a great cross to not have a child that looks like you. Like, Dale and Sue Vots are engaged encounter couple, and they give an awesome testimony about infertility in their marriage and part of the suffering that they had to endure was that they'll never have a child where they can look into the child's face and see their own face but they also have a great story of the children that got sent into their lives who needed them to be their parents in a very specific way
And we're all called to spiritual motherhood and fatherhood. And in a really more purified way, they do have to be open to accepting the children that God wants to send to them. You know, where there's been great suffering in our life are those challenges which are opportunities for our Lord to purify us in obedience. Then, like we really end up in this position where we can become saints. And so that complete surrender comes more difficult. It It comes by way of more difficulty But the fruitfulness from it is something like that brings great joy. So that's the best I can do here. Any other sister? Do your questions? The ten minutes left. Okay. My question kind of articulated. Um, you talked about in the narrative that thing that changes the future, mm-hmm. like creates the gap. Is that always a result of sin? I'm thinking that you gave the example of Jennifer Fender. She got cancer. Did God? Could you say God allowed it? God willed it? She just got cancer. She just got cancer. Because when we try to say that God somehow allowed it or willed it, we turn God into this person that causes evil in our life in order to test us. And that's not who God has revealed himself to be. She just got cancer. And cancer is a result of sin, yes, because it's a result of original sin. And without original sin, there would be perfect harmony in the world. There would be no death. So in that way, it's a result of sin. But disasters happen. Disease happens. People get sick. Children die. And if we try to go down the road of God allowed it to happen, or it's all part of God's will, or God is trying to prepare you for something, we turn God into this tyrant or manipulator of our lives. Ultimately, God has called us all to be his sons and daughters and to trust him. And trying to explain away our pain is actually a manifestation that we don't trust him. It's trying for us to come up with an explanation for something that's not explainable. Stanley Hauerwas says that you know, suffering has no point the same way that creation has no point. Like, why did God create the world? Well, there's not really, like, or he just did it. And he manifests his glory, but we don't really think he was sitting up in the Trinity, like, with himself in perfect gaudium and joy, and thought to himself, hey, I think I'm going to create a world so I can manipulate these people down there. Or... I have a need to manifest my glory materially. He just did it. It's like this outpouring of love. And to try to make it specific will always kind of get us in trouble. And so the same thing with suffering. Like suffering, when we try to give it a point, we end up going down that path of turning God into somebody that he hasn't revealed himself to be. And it's a movement away from entrusting our life to him. Sister? Isn't that like in the reading today, so Joseph did lie? Is that maybe 
Yes. So, when I look back on my life, I might say, for the sake of being the kind of priest that people who have problems feel like they can talk to, God allowed all that to happen. I could say that. Because it's what God's done with my life. And it's the fruitfulness of our Lord entering into my life. But if I say that God made all that happen just so that I could be the spiritual director of XYZ person, then our Lord has hurt me in a way that was deeply painful just so he can help somebody else. And so what does that say about him? Like Our Lord redeems everything. Our Lord can redeem all pain and suffering. But he doesn't create pain and suffering for the simple way of finding something to do because then you have to say to a father, your child died of leukemia so that you can become a better person. Right? And we cannot say, you can't say that to a father whose child just died of cancer. God took your child away from you so that you would learn how to be holier. Like your child just died. And some people live 87 years and some people live 7 years. And 7 years is a full life for that 7-year-old who lived 7 years. And they bring joy into the world. They bring love into the world for those 7 years. But the danger of theodicy and trying to come up with an explanation for suffering as if it's part of God's master plan the danger of it is is that you end up in a position where you have to tell somebody that God killed their child in order to make them a better person. And the only thing that resolves it really is just for that person to surrender their life to our Lord and recognize that things go beyond our understanding and beyond explanation. So there's this, um, like Stanley Harabas writes on all of this in a book called God, Medicine, and Suffering. Uh, he's a Methodist, but what he writes on suffering is really good. And then, because um, he uses this example of a book by Peter DeVries called The Lamb's Blood. And in that book, there's this guy and he loses his daughter to leukemia and he's really all like ticked off and he's mad at God and somebody gives him like a cake like, here, this will make you feel better. And he's at the church, and he, like, turns and he throws the cake at the crucifix. And then he notices, like, the icing, like, pouring down out of Jesus' eyes and landing on him. And then he came to realize, like, that our Lord was with him in his suffering. But that realization that our Lord is with me in my suffering, it only came after the fact that he got really mad at Jesus for, why did you do this to me? And entered into that kind of dialogue of confrontation. So I wrote my thesis on like those guys, um, Haravas Munier and Salvavishi Dolores. But it's just the danger that we get into. We can get into that danger of theodicy that like sometimes suffering just happens. And anytime when we try to explain it in a different way, it just doesn't work. Our Lord redeems it. Right? Our Lord redeems it. <coughs> the redemption in my own life, like it will bear fruit in the lives of others. The redemption in your life, it will bear fruit in the lives of others. Right? But it doesn't mean that God made you go through all this crap just so that he could do something else with you. Sister. Well, I don't think saying that it just happens is a, a satisfying explanation. Uh, 
even if we look at it from the point of original sin and distortion, that still is an explanation. It doesn't make God look bad. But, I mean, I don't think you would say it just happens, because nothing just happens. So it happens without a point. Like, there's not, it's not like God wills it to happen. Right? Like, okay. evil is the absence of the good. And so, when I say it just happens, what I mean is that to stay away from, God willed it to happen. I can accept that. But I can, okay. You know, if you say that just happens, then you can say, look at all of creation. You can't just say, all of creation just happened. No, God did it, but we don't know why. Okay. God did it, but we don't know why. And we accept the fact that God did create, and we don't know why. And so in a similar manner, like we can accept that there is suffering in the world, and we don't know why. And the only thing that we can do is surrender our life to our Lord. That's the only way to resolve it. Anybody else? Chris. Okay. How long is the, the theory of making peace with your father? Uh huh. All right. So you have a family, and the father is still in a marriage with the mother. Yep. But then he has this ongoing extramarital affair on the side. Yep. That everybody knows about. Mm hmm. For the child, and the child knows that his father's having an affair, then what's the likelihood that the child thinks the father's trustworthy? So how able is that child going to be to entrust his life to that guy? Not much, which is also going to be an obstacle to his spiritual life. Right? That all happens. So like he needs trustworthy people in his life who will enter into his life. Okay? And I see it all the time. I see that all the time with people. So, and most of the time, they don't think it's a big deal. Sometimes, like, dad left home when I was eight. He came back when I was 11. Did that affect you? No. When did you develop this addiction? Uh, from the time I was about, like, 10 or 11. Oh, okay. But that's where those things creep into our life, and then we forget that that's why they creeped in. That's where, like, good psychotherapists help people to sort those things out and to figure out our own story and come to understand our own lives. When we come to understand our own lives, then we can invite our Lord into our own lives. Right? And that's how those things kind of go in tandem. All right, it's 12.30, so thank you all. Um, and we'll say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. And I ask you to continue to pour out your Holy Spirit upon all present here. That we may continually grow in our love of you. For you are all good. You are all trustworthy. You are the source of our joy. And through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, St. John Paul II, and all the saints, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, one more day. Thanks.